you've got to develop a thick skin. For many, this turn of phrase evokes an image of a respected elder providing sage advice to a naive young protagonist. To develop a metaphorical shield of armor, impervious to blows of criticism and protecting the vital organs of confidence and spirit. Now, imagine you are a medieval warrior in a drawn-out battle. Your very real suit of armor becomes stiffer and heavier as it rusts, and you add more layers of chainmail reinforcements. What was once meant to protect you now hinders you, as your movements become slow and painful, and each breath feels restricted within a tight metal cage. Cases of patients with hard and tightened, wood-like skin on the face and hands leading to joint immobility were first described by Hippocrates around 400 BC. In 1836, Dr. Govam Battiste Fantinetti coined the term scleroderma from the Latin word sclero, meaning thickened, and derm, meaning skin, to describe this condition. Today, scleroderma is known to be a hallmark feature of systemic sclerosis, a rare and potentially life-threatening disease that causes multi-organ fibrosis and vasculopathy. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, A Thick Skin, Understanding Scleroderma. Systemic sclerosis is considered a type of collagen vascular disease, characterized by multi-organ fibrosis and vasculopathy, leading to organ dysfunction. The skin is the principal organ targeted, but multiple organs may be affected, including the heart, kidneys, and lungs and the disease is thus more commonly now referred to as systemic sclerosis. While the pathogenesis of systemic sclerosis is complex and not fully understood, immune activation, vascular endothelial damage, and excessive fibroblast activation all appear to be hallmarks of the disease. Connective tissue, which includes blood and blood vessels, cartilage, and adipose tissue, helps to support and protects organs within the body. The major component of connective tissue is the extracellular matrix, which is formed through the deposition of collagens by fibroblasts with the help of elastin and fibrillin proteins. Fibroblasts are the most prevalent cell type within connective tissues, and they play an important role in tissue homeostasis and wound healing by regulating extracellular matrix turnover. Vascular injury causes endothelial cells to release endothelium-1, a powerful vasoconstrictor leading to increased vascular tone and fibroblast activation. Response to vascular injury also involves migration and hypertrophy of smooth muscle cells within blood vessel walls, causing them to stiffen and narrow, and resulting in vascular remodeling in organs, including the lungs, heart, and kidneys. There is also a powerful inflammatory and immunologic response involving the release of many cytokines, the activation of pro-inflammatory mediators, and the development of autoantibodies within the extracellular matrix. While the causes of vascular injury and systemic sclerosis are disputed, the resulting vascular remodeling and inflammation is known to trigger further activation of fibroblasts, which in turn leads to excessive extracellular matrix production and collagen deposition, leading to diffuse tissue fibrosis. There are different clinical phenotypes of systemic sclerosis based on the degree of skin involvement. However, Their distinction is beyond the scope of today's episode. Because the skin changes in scleroderma often precede other organ involvement, the first opportunity for diagnosis often occurs in an outpatient setting. 
These patients require a thorough assessment of the hands, joints, skin, and screening for underlying organ involvement. Often, patients present to care due to Raynaud's phenomenon, one of the earliest and most common manifestations of the disease. Raynaud's is caused by vasospasm and reduced circulation within peripheral vasculature, most commonly in the hands and less often in the feet. On history, ask your patient if they develop color changes in the hands or feet when they are exposed to cold temperatures or in response to emotional stress, which can be another trigger. The color change is typically two-phased, with pallor followed by either a cyanotic blue appearance or an erythematous red appearance. It is important to try to delineate these details on history, as patients rarely display the phenomenon during clinical encounters, making physical examination challenging. In most cases, only two to three digits are affected, and symptoms typically last 30 to 60 seconds. You could also ask about digit numbness, pain, or paresthesias. While Raynaud's phenomenon can be a benign occurrence, all patients in whom you suspect Raynaud's should be asked about other features of systemic sclerosis. Crest syndrome is an older term for limited scleroderma, but while no longer used to describe the disease, it is an acronym still worth remembering, as it highlights several cardinal signs and symptoms to screen for. C stands for calcinosis cutis, rock-like calcium deposits often seen on the distal arms. R stands for Raynaud's phenomenon, E stands for esophageal dysmotility, and S for sclerodactyly, which is thickening of the skin on the digits. T is for telangiectasias. Other skin findings include fingertip ulcers, nail bed pitting, and swelling of entire fingers, termed dactylitis. In more advanced stages of sclerosis and atrophy, patients can develop flexion contractures of the fingers, forming a claw-like deformity, as well as digital ischemia. A thorough joint examination may reveal features of inflammatory arthritis in up to 65% of patients, typically in the small and medium joints of the upper and lower limbs. A small percentage of patients will have features of another autoimmune disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis or systemic lupus erythematosus, and this is termed systemic sclerosis overlap syndrome. One helpful way to distinguish the inflammatory arthritis of scleroderma from rheumatoid arthritis is there is often DIP involvement in scleroderma, which is classically spared in rheumatoid arthritis. More than 80% of systemic sclerosis patients will have some degree of pulmonary involvement, of which interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension are the most common. Cardiac and respiratory examinations should take note to assess for fine Velcro-like crackles over the lung bases or evidence of right-sided heart failure. Other potential cardiac manifestations of the disease include arrhythmias, myocarditis, and pericarditis. Assessment for the presence of orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, palpitations, and chest pain is thus relevant. We'll start off with an autoimmune panel. An ANA panel is useful, as approximately 95% of patients with systemic sclerosis have a positive ANA. However, the ANA is nonspecific. There are several autoantibodies classically associated with systemic sclerosis, but these are only moderately sensitive. The presence of these antibodies in a patient with Raynaud's, but no other manifestations of scleroderma, 
highly predicts future progression to systemic sclerosis. Other serology testing to differentiate systemic sclerosis from other autoimmune disorders include rheumatoid factor, anti-CCP, anti-DSDNA, and an ENA panel. You'll want to order a vasculitis panel as well if this is high on your differential. Other tests that can aid your diagnostic certainty include joint x-rays to assess for calcinosis cuti and neofold capillaroscopy to assess for abnormal microvasculature, which is typically performed by a rheumatologist or dermatologist. Other laboratory and imaging investigations are important for targeting potential organ involvement. You can order a CPC and differential to assess for anemia and thrombocytopenia in the context of GI malabsorption, GI bleeding, or bone marrow suppression due to progressing kidney disease. A serum creatinine and urinalysis with microscopy will also be helpful to assess renal function. All patients with suspected or confirmed systemic sclerosis require evaluation for ILD and pulmonary hypertension, which can occur in up to 50 and 10% of these patients, respectively. Further, ILD is the leading cause of disease-related mortality in these patients. These patients require PFTs and high-resolution CT scan at diagnosis and annually for at least five years, as well as monitoring of RVSP and ventricular function on echocardiogram. These patients should be followed by a respirologist with clinical expertise in these diseases, often in combined respirology rheumatology clinics. Check out the internetwork episodes on pulmonary hypertension and interstitial lung disease for more information. We will discuss one other organ system impacted by systemic sclerosis, the kidneys, as most patients will develop pathologic evidence of renal disease. This commonly manifests as hypertension, proteinuria, and rising creatinine levels. Approximately 5% of patients will develop a scleroderma renal crisis, a severe and life-threatening complication characterized by hypertensive emergency, headache, seizures, encephalopathy, and retinopathy. Blood work will reveal a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with thrombocytopenia and schistocytes on peripheral blood smear. In a patient with known systemic sclerosis admitted to hospital with any of these findings, suspicion for sclerodermal renal crisis must be high, and the only treatment with a mortality benefit and reduced progression to end-stage renal disease is prompt blood pressure control. The antihypertensive agent of choice is an ACE inhibitor of which captopril has been the most widely studied. These patients require admission to a monitored setting with an arterial line for continuous blood pressure monitoring, such as the step-down unit or ICU, and early nephrology consultation is important, as some patients may require dialysis. Fortunately, systemic sclerosis is relatively rare, with an estimated prevalence of 1 in 5,000. Women are affected three to four times more frequently than men, and disease most commonly arises between the ages of 30 to 50 years. However, men who are affected typically have a higher likelihood of multi-organ disease and worse prognosis. Unfortunately, there is currently no cure or effective disease-modifying agents for systemic sclerosis, and treatment is generally organ-specific and targeted at symptom management and monitoring. In patients with multi-organ involvement, systemic immunosuppression may be considered. However, this decision should be made by a rheumatologist. Despite its challenges, the treatment for scleroderma have come a long way from the use of warm milk, blood leeches, vapor baths, and quicksilver described by Dr. Carlo Caruso in the 18th century. Research is ongoing in the evaluation of new therapies, with the hope of reducing disease progression 
and improving patient quality of life. This includes investigating the roles of IVIG, monoclonal antibodies, and hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Thank you for listening to today's episode, entitled A Thick Skin, Understanding Scleroderma. This episode was written by Dr. Laura Spatafora, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Stephanie Garner, rheumatologist, and Dr. Daniel Brandvegas, general internal medicine. The internet work was created by Alison Lai and developed by Leah Karanopoulos and Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Samantha Mohan. This episode was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Nafis Hussein. Please check out our website, theinternetwork.com, for an associated infographic. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.